Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome to a special episode of Breaking Banks. Insert that breaking news sound right now. What could make us come out of hibernation when we just released a show? Well, a once dormant authority of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is being invoked to examine non-bank companies posing risks to consumers. What does once dormant mean? Is this good? Is it bad? Indifferent? And why now? In the first half, Dara Tarkowski, host of the Tech on Reg podcast, and I talk about the legal definitions, and she schools me that this is not a cryogenically frozen piece of regulation being unthawed. In fact, it has some pretty far-reaching implications. And in the second segment, Lindsay Davis and Alex Johnson, both frequent guests, join me to opine on the impact for both startups, the banks behind them, and importantly, the banks that are also beside them. What does this mean for the industry as a whole? Next on Breaking Banks, frozen regulations. All right, so a once dormant rule is pulled out by the CFPB. It's like, take it out of cold storage. I don't know, is this like coming out of, like, is this alien? It's coming out of like the Cairo storage, like unleash the rule. Dara, what does it mean? What does this rule say? All right, so it's been cryogenically frozen since the wonderful year of 2013. Um, So unless you, if you're in financial services, unless you have been living under an actual rock, you know that on April 25th, the CFPB said that it is going to make more, more use of its dormant authority to conduct supervisory examinations of non-bank companies key non-bank companies that it believes, quote, poses a risk to consumers. In its announcement, it basically said that it is finally going to begin invoking this dormant authority that has ex- that has always existed in Dodd-Frank. So I just want everyone to be clear, this language has been in Dodd-Frank since 2013. And what the language in Dodd-Frank actually says is that it allows the agency, the CFPB, to supervise non-bank financial companies when, quote, it has reasonable cause to determine that they are engaged in potentially risky conduct. So yes, you just heard me read a sentence that has qualifier, 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 judgment, judgment, qualifier. It's an incredibly uh, elastic phrase. And for many, many years, it has just sort of sat there. And in my view, it's like mostly been because they've been really busy supervising the actual people who fall under their supervisory. The actual regulated entities. Yes. The the really, really big ones. Um, And uh, now Director Chopra is like, no, I would like to supervise everybody. Thank you very much. Well, so let's talk about this for a second. This is my curiosity question. Is there an actual legal definition of dormant versus unused or we're going to begin using this? Like I I find like the use of the word dormant 
very like precise? Um, so it's a, le- I mean, it's a legal term of art. So we've used the word dormant when it's applied to other statutes, rules, and regulations that, you know, have existed in or codified in statute for a long time, but it's up to a regulator to choose when and if it might exercise that authority. So there's nothing nefarious about the word dormant. Us lawyers like to, uh, use very, um, I don't know, scary words for simple concepts, but they mean the same thing. It's just lawyers being lawyers. I yeah. apologize on behalf of my profession. <laughs> I'm going to guess like there were like 95% of people out there of the non-lawyer population that were wondering why the use of the word dormant. So thank you for answering. Well, honestly, it's just like, it sounds a whole lot better to say we're exercising our dormant authority than being like, yeah, we've ignored these words for a really long time. <laughs> right? All it right. Should so- sounds a little bit better. So now that they're unignoring them, let's talk about some of the consequences and let's go across some of the verticals and let's talk about the the risk aspect, right? Like that is, you know, the judgment, judgment uh, piece of this, w- you know, where is the risk? And I think we'll get into next the why now aspect. Okay. So as far as the, the risk is concerned, and if you're talking about risk, like how is the CFPB going to determine who gets the benefit of the use of their dormant authority, the way um, they filed an amendment to a procedural rule as well. And we'll talk about the importance of that because that's going to impact the answer to question number one, and it's really going to impact the answer to question number two. But essentially, they've always been authorized to conduct supervisory exams if they can demonstrate that the company that they would like to supervise has posed some sort of serious risk to consumers. And the way they ascertain whether or not a company has posed a serious risk is a bunch of influx of data from a few different channels. It could be the complaint portal. It could be the news. It could be a series of lawsuits that they got filed. It could be a tip from the FTC. It could be um, you know, a group of AGs coming to them saying, hey, we all have this common issue with this company. Can the CFPB step in and do something about it? So then they gather all the facts from whatever sources they're gathering them from and make a determination. Then they have to notify the organization um, of their determination. And typically there's an opportunity for the company to respond and either say, no, our business, uh, our business model, this conduct, whatever it is you're complaining about is not actually too risky. And that's a little process that happens before the supervision actually takes place. But the most important part is that the director, i.e. Rohit Chopra, is given incredible discretion on determining what's risky, what's not, because it's not codified anywhere. There there are no standards, uh, so to speak. Well, and so while it would be nice if all of it was codified, you know, I'm going to argue the opposite side of this, where all too often, one of the complaints for the innovators, whether they be large institutions or startups, is because it isn't codified, when you ask a regulator of any sort, what do you think of this? The answer is, I can't tell you. Just wait until you do something wrong and we'll come back to you. And in the second half of uh, this episode, Lindsay Davis and Alex Johnson are going to talk about the implications specific to the banking as a service side of this, where, you know, when I still remember the very first uh, sit down I had with the OCC and 
uh, my Perk Street days. So keep in mind, this is now, it is 2010. We're bringing on our um, second issuing bank. We went to their regulator. We sat down and we said, hey, here's exactly what we intend to do. Here is why it doesn't impact safety and soundness. Here are all the guard rules we put in place. And their examiner leaned back, crossed her arms and said, I don't like it. And we asked why. And she goes, I can't tell you. You're going to have to wait for your next exam. This to me feels like a little bit of the you now are opening up a direct line for you know both startups and other innovators to go directly to the CFPB in advance of some of this and have direct discussions. No, no, not even if, not, if we're not recording this, you know, with video, no, Dara no, is shaking her head emphatically. No, 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 no. Um, unfortunately, that is not what this is designed for. Um, it's not what it's meant for. This is not. This isn't the FCA, right? This is not this is not the FCA in the UK. This is a power that the CFPB will choose when and if to exercise if it believes that a company is doing something wrong. This is not yeah. an avenue for a company to approach the CFPB to find out if they're doing something right. You will never get that sort of answer from the government, not in this country. Well, that it speaks to a broader issue, but back to the codified piece of this and the level yeah. of discretion, I frankly wish more regulators had more discretion as opposed to a bit of the race to the bottom of, um, let's call it, um, you know, institutional memory, whether real or not, about, you know, things that might be hiding in the shadows that therefore we cannot do these things. Cough, cough, wet signature on SIG cards because somebody somewhere once actually pulled out a signature card and compared it to the signature on a check. And therefore, for here on out, everyone is still arguing about. And I still hear this from banks. Oh, we need a wet signature for that. It's like, what? Um, I know it's it's special. It's special, but the sick part. So let's play this out. Where do you think the most serious impacts are going to be? Like, where where are we going to hear about this first causing issues? Well, look, I I think that the authority, if you read the CFPB's press release, they believe that the authority gives them agility to move quickly in the market and allowing them, they've really limited to, they've limited it to them, allowing them to conduct examinations of financial companies posing risk to consumers. That's what they've said in the press release. But if you actually go into the act, it's actually far broader than just finance, like financial institutions. Um, it can go to any of the ancillary services that impact financial institutions as well. Um, and it is not, it's, it's very broad. Um, and without any set of standards, you're just sort of left, you're sort of left guessing, which is difficult because anyone who's ever been through a supervisory exam knows that they are very time consuming. They are very costly. And without some sort of standards, especially for a small organization that understood they were not a large market participant. Of course, everyone could be subject to enforcement, large companies, small companies, whoever, but at yep. least on the supervisory side, it was supposed to be just for the large ones. This, you know, that that's what the market understood. Now everyone has to be on their heels. Everyone has to be on their toes and without, you know, sort of clear guidelines as to who, what, and where 
it becomes very difficult, especially for a startup, for example, to try to make their way through a supervisory exam. These that you can't do it without a lawyer. Anyone listening, I'm going to say it slower. You cannot do this without a lawyer. Um, and you know, I've I've been involved in them where they've taken weeks and weeks and weeks, and it it's cost clients a ton of money. So everyone start saving your pocket change. Like, so you've made the case for why it's bad. Give me the counter argument. Where is a case where this would actually be good? Where is there, their actual opportunity? If things break right, this is actually a good thing. So I want to, I just want to go back and say, I didn't say it was bad. I said it was confusing and expensive. Um, you are it, such a lawyer. Yeah, yeah. That's why I'm on the show, Jace. That's why I'm on the show. Um, it can be good. I have a difficult time sort of distinguishing where their supervisory authority versus their enforcement, that line in this particular case, in my mind, becomes mm. very, very blurry. And the reason for that is if you're going to, if you need some evidence of risk or bad conduct to invoke this dormant authority, isn't that sort of the same thing that you would need to issue a civil investigative demand? So I'm trying to and, and exercise your enforcement authority, which everyone expects and already has but maybe they don't want to be subject to the administrative procedural rules that a CID imposes and they want to do it in a more flexible forum under supervision. So to me, it is really two sides of the same coin, particularly when you when the government is going to have to demonstrate why this company poses a risk versus if you have all this information about risky behavior of the company, why not just issue a CID? I'm still, I'm still like wrapping my brain around the distinction or at least how the government's going to try to distinguish it. Well, play that out in, you know, layperson terms so that I think others can understand both this idea of supervisory versus enforcement. Cause I don't think, unless you're a regular listener on tech on reg, um, you know, which your elk of lawyers understood uh-huh. from the outset, why don't you get into that for the non-compliance sure. regulatory people here? Okay, so the CFPB, when it was formed, um, supposed to do three things, three very distinct silos in the agency. Silo number one was rulemaking. That agency was charged with power to draft rules for very specific laws. And they've done that. Um, Regulation F, for example, was a huge undertaking, went into effect of last year that impacted the debt collection industry. Um, they've uh, drafted rules on payments. They've drafted rules on payday. So that's one job. Job number two was supposed to be supervision. And supervision, that silo, was designed with one team of people who oversaw what was called large market participants. There's a very specific legal definition of what a large market participant was. But you knew if you were big enough that the CFPB could send you a letter and 60 days later show up at your door asking for documents and to review things to quote unquote supervise you. Now, the interesting part was, is that supervision was initially private. It was confidential. Mm. If if the regulators found something uh, about your processes that they wanted improved, you could go through that process in a confidential manner. Did it stop you from conducting business in that process or could no. re, okay so you could continue to operate you just had to remediate 
you had to remediate. You, they, they watched to make sure that you did remediate. There were reporting obligations after the remediation went into effect so that they could ensure that the changes you made were permanent um, and ongoing and properly redressed whatever finding um, may have come out of your examination. Now, however, in exercising their new dormant authority, remember that procedural rule I said that they wanted to amend? So that procedural rule is like, yeah, I know everything used to be private. Now we're going to publish the findings of our supervisory exams. So what was once private will now become public. This is a huge, massive issue and creates all sorts of liability for these companies in other areas. Um, and we can talk about that in a sec. But the third pillar was enforcement. Enforcement was like bad companies, supposedly doing bad things to consumers. And these are this was the arm of the regul of this regulatory body that was going to issue subpoenas, otherwise known as civil investigative demands or CIDs. But think of it as just a subpoena. They get to send you a subpoena, give you a list of things, reports, documents, testimony, stuff that they want from you. And then based on that evidence, they're going to decide whether or not they're going to essentially prosecute you for, for violations of the law. So that opens up the giant can of worms in terms of the level of authority and what they can go do with it. And I now understand a little bit more of your hesitancy in terms of how broad it is. Talk to me more about how amending the rule, how this could play out. Okay. So the Monday, the procedural rule amendment presented on the 25th basically was offered by the CFPB in the spirit of transparency. Um, Director Chopra said that transparency was very, very important to him, to the organization, and he believes to the American people. So if a decision or order uh, basically is publicly released, it would be available essentially as precedent for future proceedings, for civil litigation. You know, it's, it's information that the general public would not have otherwise had. Chopra, like, has he's expressed some concern about, you know, the risks associated with the increasing and sharing of, you know, consumer financial services activity, but he's not, he's not that concerned. He's much more concerned about the transparency. And by the way, in the uh, Senate hearings that he had very shortly afterwards, um, not unsurprisingly, Democratic lawmakers praised, praised him, praised the move. Republican lawmakers felt quite differently and accused him of massive regulatory overreach. And this is very much hearkening back to the early days of the Bureau under Director Cordray. But this, I mean, to me, it feels like Cordray plus. <laughs> yes. Well, and I was a little bit surprised, frankly, we don't often veer into the political realm, but, you know, I think actually, so no surprise, a lot of banks skew to the conservative side um, sure. in terms of their leadership, e.g. Republican. And most of them actually, I think, at least the ones I've spoken to, actually are in favor of this, that this is a leveling of the playing field that, oh, the those you know darn kids get away with everything um, as the startups and the innovators, that they view this as actually bringing them into the fold of what they have to deal with. What, what are your thoughts on that? Is it actually leveling the playing field or is it complicating it? 
I don't know why banks think that those whippersnappers get away with everything. They don't. I have a, I have a massive practice defending these non-bank financial institutions in supervisory exams, in regulatory enforcement actions, you know, responding to civil investigative demands. So if they're, I mean, for, for anyone listening, that they think there's this perception that these non-bank financial institutions go unregulated, it is patently false. In fact, Without the blessing of, you know, an OCC charter or some other federal charter, most of these non-bank financial institutions are not only answering to, you know, the federal regulators, but they're answering to every single state regulator as well because they need special licensure uh, from each and every state that they operate in for the most part. Um, Whereas an OCC chartered bank, yeah, they have to answer to all of the states as well, but they know who their primary regulator is. They're, and they're they're trying to please one specific master as opposed to a lot of the the smaller fintech companies that operate nationally are answering to 52 masters yep well at least the bank behind them is I mean but 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 I but honestly they are as well they're they're not out of they're not out of the woods on that they get served with civil investigative demands with the same frequency as as the entities lending the money yeah. So as you look forward, what are you advising clients and you know, insert your disclosure, this is not legal advice, blah, 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 blah. Um, what should listeners be preparing for given the new rule? So I've or always- Or the now non-dormant rule, the unhibernated. Yes. Um, so I've always told all of my clients that- um, no matter what, whether whether the government requires you to or not, if you're operating within the space or if you're a service provider to this space, I base the compliance management systems within these organizations need to stand up to supervisory scrutiny, whether they get supervised or not. So for me, I benchmark everything off of the CFPB supervisory manual. It is a wonderful um, 900-page publicly available document for those of you who need some bedtime reading. But the information contained in there really is excellent guidance for if you don't have a fully fleshed out compliance management system, you need one. Those are the things that supervisory lawyers are going to be looking for if you're one of the unlucky few that is the, you know, that is the you know, recipient of uh, a request for them to exercise their dormant authority over you or your organization. So to the extent that your CCO is not uh, on top of things, they have to get on top of things. Um, And it's best, it's a best practice anyway. So it's good housekeeping anyway, whether or not you're, you actually become, you know, uh, caught up in, in, in any of this and, you know, you gotta, gotta clean house. But that's but it's good for the organization anyway, and it's good for consumers anyway. So if you didn't have reason before, you most definitely have reason now. Fantastic. So in the second segment, Lindsay Davis and Alex Johnson will talk about specific to banking as a service and a little bit more broadly. What are the implications for the innovators? Dara, thanks for bringing the legal perspective and defining dormant for Jason. No problem. Thanks for having me, Jason. Welcome to The Futurist, where your hosts, Brett King and Robert Tursek, interview the world's foremost super forecasters, thought leaders, technologists, entrepreneurs, and futurists building the world of tomorrow. 
Our guests include Kevin J. Anderson, a New York Times bestselling author that worked on the Oscar-winning Dune movie, Andrew Hessel, synthetic biologist and author of The Genesis Machine, and Dr. Harry Clore of Beyond Imagination, the company behind robot avatars like Bamney, one of the most sophisticated general-purpose humanoid robots on the planet. Together, we will explore how our world will be radically changed over the coming years. AI bioscience and gene therapy, renewable energy and battery technology, food and agriculture advances, computing, the metaverse, the space industry, crypto, resource management, supply chain automation, and climate change will all reshape our world over the next 100 years. Join us on The Futurist to explore what's coming next, and we will see you in the future. Hello, listeners. I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. Together, myself and Dr. Richard Petty have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence, and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet, but we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Techno-Socialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future. Now, a little bit on the funny side is we're prepping for this. The thing we all get hung up on is, what do we call this thing? We keep calling it the dormant the dormant. And as Lindsay, you pointed out, hey, it's been there for a really long time. And I'm curious, as a longtime follower of you know the fintech world, both broadly and how it impacts banking as a service, what is your hot take on the impact of this now non-dormant um, move by the CFPB to look at non-banks? From my vantage point, and it's something we've discussed in the past, it's something we've always seen coming if not overdue in some categories and cases. Uh, we'll get into some of the areas in which they claim to be digging into versus like where the actual implications are. But there's a lot that's actually underfolding under this current CFPB regulation. And they've had non-dormant authority over non-banks for some time now. And a lot of fintech companies have been proactive about being regulated and raising what they're doing to the regulators to try and get guidance in advance of these types of rulemakings. But it's a... Honestly, it's a positive signal going forward. I think fintech companies have largely been working with, I mean, the good ones with regulators to figure out how to bring their products and services to market in the best interest of consumers. But those companies that align with the new guidance of the CFPB are, are going to be well positioned going forward. So you view this as a positive thing for the marketplace? My initial read, to be quite honest, was, oh, no, but... 
as I, as I dug into it, it, again, it just signals what they care about when every time they put out guidance and, and underlying that is the categories in which they're digging into, which is unsurprising lending, BNPL, certainly called out within that, but it doesn't specifically say, but when you say non-bank, it's anyone that's touching consumers, checking and savings, right? The money that's going into the deposit accounts, the money that is being leveraged to, to become top of wallet. So it's it's the lifeblood of most consumers. Like it's their primary source of income. And as a company in the direct deposit acquisition space with Atomic, we are positively, you know, thinking about this as a as the right next step. I'd like to think it's because when you and I talked about it, when it first came out, like right after it came out, I said, well, it might not be such a bad thing. Alex, what's your take? Good, bad, indifferent, TBC. Yeah, I'm a little split on it. I think that, you know, generally the CFPB, I think, has a fairly positive attitude for the most part towards fintech, largely as a sort of counterweight in the industry to banks and helping, you know, give consumers more choices. And we've certainly seen that language and that sort of stance around things like overdraft. And so I think in general, I would agree. I think it's a positive sign. I think it'll provide more sort of guidance and allow for, you know, fintech to kind of flourish a little bit more freely with with some regulatory guidance. The one piece of it that I would be a little concerned about from a fintech perspective is this dormant authority that apparently is no longer going to be dormant is really hinged on the idea that we're going to look at companies or sectors that we perceive as having a great deal of risk to consumers. And so there there is this tendency, I think, under the the latest incarnation of the CFPB to use their sort of soft power around publicity and around, you know, putting out blog posts or making public statements or designating companies uh, as potentially being risky as a way to sort of curb their behavior or sort of coerce what they're doing in a direction that the CFPB wants. And I, I think that's the one potential negative side is that if you don't do what Lindsay was describing and work proactively with the CFPB and try to sort of get out ahead of this, if you end up at a point where they do designate you as being a higher risk for consumers, that designation just by itself is going to be sort of a negative signal to the market. And so I definitely think it puts the onus on fintech companies that weren't already proactively working with the CFPB to start doing that, because if they don't, they're going to find themselves on the bad side of this designation, and then they'll be sort of facing an uphill battle. And Alex, do you think it's categories that are facing that riskier designation, or is it individual companies that this is taking aim at? Yeah, I think it's likely to be both, to be honest. I mean, I think BNPL was probably an early example of the CFPB starting to flex this muscle, and that was more of a category, although we did see some short-term sort of stock fluctuations when the CFPB came out and announced that. So clearly, they do have some market power at a category level. But I also think we're going to see this uh, focused on individual companies where the CFPB really feels like that's appropriate. And, you know, certainly we've seen them recently sort of call out or even take enforcement action against specific companies. So I think this will be a tool that's used both at a category level and a company level. How about you, Lindsay, when you think about where this is going to take aim first, BMPL is the obvious first step as we've talked about in the past, you know, is it alone or not alone? Where else do you see this going? Well, if you look at the 
CFPB's complaint database, which is an open database for anybody in the market, a consumer to file a complaint against a financial services business. Largely, there's over 2.6 million since the thing was incepted in December of 2011. 40% of that is to the credit bureaus, actually, themselves, TransUnion, Equifax, and the products that consumers are ultimately complaining about are related to credit reporting, their ability to repair their credit, as well as personal consumer reports. It's like 72% of overall complaints. And if you just search for the fintech companies, the large ones, no, right, Robinhood, total only 375 complaints, Chime, only 2,000 complaints, Moneyline, 1,000. Again, in the combination, this is sub 1% of total complaints that go to the CFPB. So it's curious to, to notice you know, that they're, they're taking this authority now, which I think is a proactive a, a way to get ahead of potential future wrongdoing. But if you think about the game stock you know, conundrum that was going on and consumers complaining about Robinhood, they weren't really taking to the regulatory authority that was given to them to do such. So my curiosity is why now? And at the company level, I couldn't, I mean, we have seen, uh, to Alex's point, the recent notice against MoneyGram for deceptive services. So as, as these fintech companies think about how does this guidance impact them, I'd certainly think about buttoning down how they are marketing and how they are aligning with existing compliance frameworks that they need to comply with, but also getting ahead of some of it, right? If you're going to be regulated as you know a bank in the non-bank category, there are certain things that you can be doing to protect yourself and hedge against that. And again, it's always about what do your customers care about and your consumers. And if they're if they're taking to, you know, your own service lines, you should absolutely be proactive in responding to them. Otherwise, you know, they they have a, a higher power to go to the CFPB to do such. Well, those complaints might be less than one percent of you know total complaints. And I think is that really a question of there are that many fewer, or is it just that there are that many more that impact you know, the credit report where it's more severe? And by the way, also when you have an adverse action on credit, it directs you to the CFPB versus I'm going to guess most of the players at a fintech startup, you know, let's use Robinhood as the example. They take to Facebook and Twitter where those complaints are well over a thousand when they go out. But, you know, this creates an interesting conundrum when you think of the banking as a service space, right? Because in theory, these fintechs the, within, let's stick within lending and the checking account space, traditional banking products, there is literally a bank behind them that in theory is also acting as a sub-regulator of sorts. And now it's interesting, you know, Alex, let's start with you. Is this going to make that relationship better or worse when now the CFPB might not just be going directly to the bank and then to the startup, but might go straight to the startup. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the thing that the fintech companies are going to have to wrestle with is what is the nature of their relationship with the partner bank that they're working with, or in some cases, the banking as a service platform that might be an intermediary between them and the partner bank or partner banks that they're working with. And I, my guess would be that the fintech companies that have a sort of better handle on their relationship with their partner banks and who they talk to and work with and work through compliance issues directly with will have a sort of better position to operate from when the CFPB starts knocking on their door. I I think that the, the risk is more around 
when these partnerships between fintechs and bank partners get abstracted by some of these banking as a service platforms, which you know offer a lot of compliance functionality and sort of offer to take the compliance burden off of those fintech companies, you know, ultimately I think what this means is that, you know, from the CFPB's perspective, they're not going to care, right? They're still going to come knock on your door if you're a fintech company that's doing something that they perceive as being risky or dangerous for consumers. And you can't point to your banking as a service platform or your partner bank and go, oh, well, that's their responsibility, not ours. That might have sort of technically worked in the past, but now that they're sort of activating this dormant authority, that's not going to work anymore. Well, and this is the part that it's wild that all three of us are coming out in favor of this that I think is generally good for this space is things have been a bit fast and loose over you know the recent tenor of uh, the last administration. And as a lot of these things kind of grew unbounded and now with, you know, that Finastro uh, survey showing 85% of banks plan to be in banking as a service in the next 18 months, you know, that's going to get even wilder, Wester, when we, you know, go into it. I think this is a, a good point to actually be able to look at and say, hey, you know, don't race to the bottom of which bank is willing to run faster and looser with their oversight, because that isn't going to shield you in the long run. And I think by being proactive about it, um, the CFPB can head some of that off at the pass. And as a result, you know, hopefully head off some bad behavior that otherwise, if it blew up, could actually, you know, have implications across you know, the entirety. As one of our Alloy Labs members likes to say in our banking as a service, uh, Center of Excellence says, you know, someone's going to pee in the pool and we're all going to get wet, whether or not, you know, and this is one of the oldest players w- within the banking as a service space, right? Where, you know, their concern is issues created by others who have not matured their offering over time are going to get us all in trouble. And I think the CFPB being able to go direct to the fintech will help. Thoughts? Well, and, and to that to that point, the other thing I would just add is, I think, you know, one of the things they emphasized in that um, press release where they announced this was agility, right? They want to be able to move faster. And so to your point about, you know, heading things off at the pass or getting ahead of these things, that seems to be the driving motivation is we don't want to wait until there's this big systemic problem we want to, and they're very active about analyzing the industry and looking at emerging fintech categories. And if they see something that's a problem, they want to jump into it quickly and get right into it without having to go through some of the the steps they might have gone through before. So I think moving faster is definitely a theme driving the CFPB here. Well, in, I would actually wish that the rest of the regulators in the US would take notice because there's two important things to this. There working faster and they're being proactive in doing it. I don't know if you've heard my rant on the monumental approach to um, regulation, which is if you look at most monuments, they're constructed around something really bad that happened. They take a long time to build. Nobody revisits them after it's actually built and they just end up being covered with pigeon shit. I don't think (laughs) I'm supposed to say that on Apple. It's an interesting, I never had heard your marble analysis. I mean, I think of the statue of Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton in Washington. And for me, like those, those, those acts were, were good things. They brought democracy and banking to, to fruition for us. But yes, some of those monuments have been revisited given uh, 
the Black Lives Matter movement and taken down, recognizing that some of these statues were built, like you said, against cultural norms today. Um, so we, we are getting better about revisiting our, our mistakes in the past. But the interesting thing to that point is that the CFPB is sort of revisiting some things that have already been put into place with prior, you know, regulators and, and regular regulator leads. So Craniger had put in place, you know, fees around the the prepaid rule, and they had revisited it earlier this year with the with the junk fee memorandum, right? And it's more aggressive language to get people to see like kind of how they how they are positioning themselves. But this has already been discussed for a decade now. Like those rules were put into place by that by that group, and so for them to revisit is sort of backtracking in the wrong direction in some ways. So I'm, I'm curious to see like how the CFPB is going to manage the massive plate of, of things that they've laid out in terms of their priority set. We know obviously BNPL and in curbing, you know, potential predatory new practices in the lending market are, are top of mind. And again, to the point of the CFPB notices what's going on in the market, like credit is a huge problem in this country. So they're certainly prioritizing based on pain, but how they are going to oversee all of this, this new mandate that they, they've taken on is going to be interesting to watch and unfold. Alex, as you see it unfolding, what is the first indication for you going to be in whether this is playing out as a good thing or a bad thing or to be determined thing? Yeah, I mean, two things that jump out to me. One is I think that there's going to be a balance, as we talked about before, between individual companies and categories. And I think, you know, it playing out as a good thing will be more at a category level where, uh, you know, the CFPB will recognize, hey, this is a new emerging category in fintech. It's gaining adoption in the industry. And we want to proactively gather information about it. We want to provide guidance on it. We want to clarify, you know, what we think these companies can do and can't do. So I think that at a category level will be really good for the industry overall, as we've talked about. If they slide more in the direction of individual companies, I think that'll be a lot harder because, you know, as any sort of lawyer who deals with compliance and financial services will tell you, it's really hard to come up with a strategy when you can only look at individual cases and try to infer where the line is rather mm. than the line being drawn very clearly. And I think from what I've heard of the, the director's comments recently, he seems very focused on we want to draw bright lines. I think he's used that exact language before in some of his comments to help the industry sort of figure out where it can and can't go. So I think that's a big one. And then I think the other one is, you know, we've been talking about sort of this non-bank category as being sort of exclusively focused on fintech. And I think fintech is a huge focus. But I also think if you look at a lot of the comments from the CFPB recently, they seem very, very focused, maybe more so than you would think just looking at the market on big tech and what big tech is going to do in financial services. And so, you know, you start to see companies like Apple pushing more in the direction of offering sort of deeper financial services or taking more financial services functions in-house. And the CFPB seems very sort of naturally suspicious of big tech participating in financial services. And they look at other markets like China and look at sort of the dominance of companies like Alibaba. And I think they look at that as a warning sign and something they want to proactively try to manage. And so I think another sort of question for the industry will be how much of the CFPB's attention goes towards, I guess, what we would call fintech versus big tech and mm. where that sort of split in focus is. 
Well, in the MoneyGram example that Lindsay already brought up, right? Like this is not just about the startup ecosystem. This is if you are playing in financial services in some form or fashion, whether or not you claim to call yourself a financial service company, you need to be scrutinized. And I think the other bright line that I really liked, Alex, in the press release was the focus on transparency. And I think this is one of one I think that's one of the most important things for consumers. But I can you know tell you from experience, you know, both from our Perk Street and working with our two issuing banks and what we deal with now in the banking as a service center of excellence is a lot of times the you know, on the startup side, they want to make some sort of claim and the bank feels stuck because in their traditional mindset, they're like, that would never fly with us as a bank, but I'm now the bank behind you. And I get why you want to make that claim. Am I going to get stuck with your CFPB complaint? Because a lot of them actually do end up at the bank level, not you know against Chime. It would actually end up behind them and not reported as such. But now as the startup, if I can go to the CFPB directly and say, hey, does this fall within your bright lines? You, know, you can actually go forward and do that without having the tension of what can I get past the you know, risk group and my program manager at the bank. In the complaints database that you have, you cannot, it's mostly about financial services companies. So it's largely based on financial entities that are regulated today. So you wouldn't see Apple Card being complained about as much. You would see Goldman Sachs as the as the entity that is the complaint against, and you'd go and investigate that. But to Alex's point, back when you know Steve Wozniak put out that tweet and he was saying that he and his wife had gotten disparate rates based on you know something that looked discriminatory. Nobody complained about it. Like it, it made a big, you know, to do a splash on social media, but consumers themselves didn't feel as impacted by that issue. So sometimes there's there's signal and then there's noise. And for the CFPB, credit cards is certainly in the credit market is are the two, you know, subcategories of these products that are are scrutinized outside of the reporting and the credit repair building. But then there is that collection as well as checking accounts, checking accounts for 9% of those total complaints. So they are starting to to look beyond the bigger, you know, complaint about categories, but there's more, there's more to to do in terms of making that even just the, for the consumer awareness part of it, to be able to say, like, I know, you know, who I bank with, you know, I know who the backend bank is. I know if I have a BNPL loan that's being securitized and resold, and there's no transparency to that. So that bringing transparency into that market in and of itself is is very profound for consumers just to be able to say like I, I know where I bank I know where you know my my loan is being you know securitized and resold and then who owns that well, that's I, I think that's such a good point Lindsay about the um sort of widening of the scope of where these complaints or concerns might come from because that was another thing they did mention in the press release was what would trigger them to look at a a company or a category that was posing risk to consumers? And they laid out a very broad set of places where they'd gather that information. One was obviously the consumer complaint database, but like they actually went out of their way to mention, hey, if we see news stories or reports or even things on Twitter about, um, you know, companies or categories doing things that pose risk to consumers, that could trigger us to kind of go into this special designation and start investigating those companies or those categories. So it's going to be a lot broader than it used to be. And so again, if you sort of were hiding behind that lack of transparency and going, oh yeah, it's it's the partner bank or, oh, can you believe how bad the credit bureaus are? And that's like a majority of the com- complaints in the database. Now there's a much broader you know, field from which we can draw these complaints or consumer concerns. And any of those could trigger this action. 
And to your point, it'll be interesting to see, and for me, this will be the tip, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Are they use are they going to be proactive and draw, begin to draw some, you know, bright lines, or are we going to find the individual companies they're being made example of? And, you know, I do think you need both stick and carrot. I'm just hoping that we start with the bright lines as opposed to, hey, you know, the this rule is coming out of hibernation because, you know, we're, we've seen some bad things and we're just, you know, letting you know the new sheriff is in town. I'm not sure why I'm on a total cowboy kick. I think it's because you know, where Alex lives. Yeah. Yeah. My neck of the woods, it's all about sort of vigilante justice and all of that. I mean, it's, I think it will be really interesting to see how they deploy this, this new ability that they have, because again, that that risk designation just by itself is a really powerful thing. They framed it as transparency, and I think that's the right way to talk about it. But the the negative implications are potentially very big for individual companies that get flagged that way. And kind of goes back to what we were talking about with Robinhood and these different um, companies that um, engender maybe complaints or pushback on social, but it doesn't translate into complaints with the CFPB. I think one sort of strategic thing the CFPB is trying to to shift themselves towards is we want to be a publicly facing place where consumers can go to find out what's happening in the financial services industry, right? So like in the past, you had to be, I think, a pretty savvy consumer to know, hey, I can go file a complaint with the the CFPB or, you know, they had to already point you in the direction of the CFPB when you got like an adverse action notice. Now, I think the CFPB wants as many consumers in the country to know, hey, if anything bad happens to you, relating to financial services, come talk to us or come visit our blog or come read what we're talking about. They want to be much more visible than they used to be. And that visibility by itself, absent any rulemaking or uh, enforcement actions, is going to be a power that they're going to wield more. They're not, well, they're not the only agency in government that does that or is trying to take a more you know public-facing persona. The FBI puts out quite a bit of press releases, and then there's other agencies that just operate and execute. And so to your to your point, maybe it is somewhat of getting their agenda pushed ahead because they are more vocal. But if you look back at the executive order that Biden put out in the fall, he's mm-hmm. calling out the CFPB and empowering them. And I think they actually already have this ability to oversee non-bank fintech companies with 1033 of Dodd-Frank, which permissioned the CFPB to define what is the definition of financial data. And then within the executive order, Biden is saying in, in forms of breaking up monopolies, especially in financial services, we want to see consumers have the ability to port their banking data wherever they want. Now, that is essentially a framework for open banking and open banking API. But broader than that, you could say financial data, which lives in a payroll system, which is what we are empowering the CFPB to consider as they begin the rulemaking process. But to to bring up this, you know, dormant rule, which was passed in 2013, and now they're, you know, haven't taken full advantage of it. They have that and they have the blessing of the executive order right behind them. They have momentum of, of the Biden administration to go make these rules. Why not take that and run with it. And then it becomes, to Jason's point, a bright line. Hey, this is this is what we are defining as such. These were all the letters that we received. And there were quite a bit. And a lot of them were from fintech companies, no surprise. And a lot of them were in the infrastructure space. Everybody well, wrote a letter. Well, and I think one of the things that it, when you would ask the question, Lindsay, why now? I wonder how much of this is with the rise of NFTs and Web3, which like, I don't know what's wilder than the Wild West in terms of where we go. You know, are we talking space here, metaverse, 
you know, sorts of things, you know, because they're not being treated as financial instruments. And there's a question of, you know, are they actually financial instruments in many cases in terms of, you know, they're the vast majority of people polled um, say they're into NFTs for the financial gain. Well, to me, that kind of means that's the definition of a, you know, a financial instrument. If I'm, you know, think of I'm investing because the value will go up. And there are certainly a lot of claims made around that that can harm consumers. Well, and I think the, the the NFT and Web3 and crypto space is a good example. And it goes back to what Lindsay was saying about the executive order. Like that's an area where for the most part, it's been the SEC trying to make rules and trying to protect, you know, non-incredited investors and you're treating these things as securities. And there's definitely a securities element to a lot of it. But a lot of it is being presented as, you know, if you're offering a interest account where you can, you know, store your money and then get a higher yield based on you know, yield farming or staking your crypto, you know, those are being presented as bank products, right? And that's not really an SEC function. I know they've weighed in on those products, but really it's a unfair, deceptive uh, practices question. And that falls under the authority of the CFPB. So the CFPB getting more involved in crypto and Web3, I think is a great example of how they're going to flex this new dormant authority and start looking at, okay, where is the consumer harm where are the sort of deceptive practices? And, you know, Jason, as you noted, there's plenty to look at there. And uh, honestly, my biggest concern for the CFPB is just bandwidth because there's so many places they could go. And so they're going to have to sort of pick their targets very carefully. Yeah. Where the greatest harm is and where they actually have the most impact. And, you know, again, the impact on the broader innovation economy and what that looks like. I think it's better if uh, regulation helps shape where it's going rather than coming in to clean up. Parting shots, Lindsay? Again, I think the companies that have done exceptionally well in this space are the ones that are going after making relationships with regulators often and early and trying to get their compliance in line with where the industry is headed and not responding to it. That's the same with the bank as well, right? Being proactive about things instead of waiting for the rulemaking to happen to you and then it's too late. And we saw a lot of this at, at DTCC when we were implementing things like FADCA and, and getting compliant ahead of, ahead of was was coming your way. You would be hit by a train otherwise. So parting thoughts are it's, it's train is coming. Either get on board or get run over. Yeah. Alex? Yeah, I agree. I think, um, you know, the takeaway for me in this sort of new era of the CFPB is if you're a fintech company, compliance, great compliance is a strategic advantage and differentiator. And so the quicker you invest in a great compliance team and start building really proactive, positive relationships with regulators, the better off your entire business and sector within fintech are going to be. And you'll avoid that uh, peeing in the pool problem that you talked about earlier. Well, and I'll build on that and say the message for boards and investors, compliance is a you know, competitive advantage but don't keep treating it like it's an expense to be managed, right? Like this right. is somewhere where you get good and you spend up front associated with it because it's a lot more expensive to remediate. Move fast and break the rules doesn't apply here because if you move fast and break the law, you go to jail. Yeah, well, and yes, the great way to end those things and tie it back to the credit union and see where that transunion uh, <laughs> prosecution goes. All right. Thank you both for joining on such short notice to talk about everyone's favorite agency, the CFPB. Happy to. Thank you. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. 
or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks. <laughs>